Indeed, Jesus did pay it all. And we can never tire of hearing those words, of saying those words, reminding ourselves of that truth. I love the hymns that remind us not only of the present reality of the truths of the gospel, that today I have forgiveness of my sin, but also remind us of that final day when we stand before the throne, as the hymn said, when we stand before him complete. And even there is where our lips will repeat the great truth that Jesus paid it all. We need Jesus to pay it then on that day. We need to be reminded that we stand complete only because Jesus paid it all. In other words, there will never be a day in all of eternity in which that gospel central truth will never be relevant to remind ourselves that all of our sins have been paid for, past, present, and future. Indeed, praise the one who has paid the debt for us. Well, I begin this morning telling the story that is told about a famous millionaire. This millionaire, while attending a dinner, heard a discussion on the subject of prayer. After listening for a while, the man of great means exclaimed with a sneer, prayer may be all right for some of you, but I don't need it. Everything I have done today, I've worked hard for. I've, and I've earned it all myself. I didn't ask God for anything. A university president who was sitting at table with him listened politely and then said to this man of great wealth, there is one thing you don't have that you might pray for. Startled, the millionaire blurted out, and what might that be? The educator replied gently, Sir, you could pray for humility. Indeed, humility is something that we should all pray for. Just like this rich man, though we can often be blinded by our pride. We go about our days oblivious to the arrogance exuding from our words and actions. Like a body odor, we are accustomed to it, but everyone else smells it, right? And it's that repulsive. Pride, though, is fundamental to what it means to be fallen humanity. The first sin in the Garden of Eden was one of pride in which our parents, Adam and Eve, both believed that they knew better than God. And ever since, humanity has been plagued with this cancer. Even secular writers have noticed this. One of the writers of ancient Rome, Cicero, once wrote about this reality. He said, nature has made us enthusiastic seekers after honor. And once we have caught, as it were, some glimpse of its radiance, there is nothing that we are not prepared to bear and go through in order to secure it. We love our honor, we love ourselves, and we go about pursuing it, as Cicero noted. But this pride is a prison. 
This pride is a prison from which there is no escape on our own. We cannot free ourselves from the bondage of self-promotion, self-trust, and self-adoration. Love of self comes hardwired in our hearts. In fact, the reformer John Calvin wrote this. He says, we are all so blinded and upset by self-love that everyone imagines he has a just right to exalt himself and to undervalue all others in comparison to self. He goes on to say, the poor yield to the rich, the common people to the upper 10, the, the servants to their masters, the ignorant to the scholars, but there is nobody who does not imagine that he is really better than the others. Everyone flatters himself and carries a kingdom in his breast. Friends, none of us can escape pride. But the good news is that Jesus Christ came to set us free from our pride. He is truly the Savior and the Redeemer who enables us to break free from that prison. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that he died on the cross so that we could be set free so that we no longer have to live for ourselves. Therefore, those who follow Jesus, those who are Christians, should be the most humble people on the planet. Unfortunately, Christians are not always known for their humility, though. They can make more headlines for their arrogance, for their infighting, for their self-promotion. Of course, Humility itself is more of a quiet virtue and by its nature doesn't make headlines. But still, the church should not be known for its selfishness and pride, but rather for its humility and its generosity to others. And Jesus makes that point clear in our passage today in Luke chapter 14. And so I'd invite you to turn there with me, if you're not there already, to the Gospel of Luke chapter 14. You'll find that on the Pew Bible in front of you on page 1038. 1038. In this text, Jesus attends a lunch, a midday meal with some Pharisees. In fact, it's a Sabbath midday meal, somewhat akin to our Sunday lunch. After the worship services in the morning, heading to lunch at someone's home together. In this case, it's a Pharisee's home. And in doing so, during this occasion, he confronts their arrogance and lays out some clear principles on how humility should characterize his followers. Being a disciple of Jesus is not for the proud and the arrogant, but the humble and the meek. Now, this lunchtime conversation is covered in verses 1 through 24. This event, this single event, is covered in all of those verses we will be looking at verses 1 through 14 today and covering the remaining verses next week. But all of them are taking place on this single occasion. So follow along as I read our text for this morning, verses 1 through 14 of Luke chapter 14. It says, One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold... There was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. And then they took him, then he took him and healed him and sent him away. 
And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And when he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, then you will begin with shame to take the lower place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he, will, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted." He said to them also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." Thus ends the reading of God's word. May God impress its truths upon our hearts this morning. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, we ask that you would please be with us as we open your word. May your voice come clearly through this text. May we hear what you, our God, have for us this morning. And may we be enthralled by our Savior, Jesus Christ, to follow his path, to follow his lead, that we might too walk in humility as he did. It's in his mighty name we pray, amen. Well, this morning in this text, we're gonna see Jesus model and teach on true humility as he confronts three manifestations of pride in the Pharisees. And I pray that we learn to cultivate Humility by repenting of these very manifestations as we find them in ourselves and that we might walk in humility as Christ did. So the first manifestation of pride we see in our text that Jesus confronts and that must be repented of is number one, cold legalism. Cold legalism. Chapter 14 here opens with another Sabbath event. The Sabbath, you'll remember, was the Jewish holy day, a day that God had commanded in the Ten Commandments for them to set aside, that there would be no work done on that day, honoring the creation that God had done, and he had rested on the seventh day, and so the Jews were to rest on the seventh day as well. Now, as a way to clarify God's law and to make sure they didn't disobey it, the religious leaders, the rabbis, set up extra instructions a list of activities that were allowed and that were not allowed on the Sabbath day. These extra set of stipulations were part of the tradition and the religiosity of the Pharisees, and it's these that Jesus will confront in this exchange. Luke records Jesus interacting with the Pharisees on the Sabbath more than any other gospel writer. This is the fourth incident that Luke records of Jesus interacting with the Pharisees on the Sabbath. There were two in chapter 6. There's one in just the previous chapter, chapter 13, and now this one in chapter 14. 
In fact, the event recorded here in 14, 1 through 6 is unique to Luke. Also unique to Luke is the recording that he does of the meals that Jesus shares with Pharisees. He recorded Jesus sharing a meal with a Pharisee in chapter 7, also in chapter 11, and now here in chapter 14. And what's interesting about these friends is that it shows that Jesus interacted with the Pharisees on their own turf. Yes, you can quote all of the, the great judgments and condemnations that Jesus gave of the Pharisees, and he had some harsh words for them. But he was not just one who lobbied missiles from a distance, but he's one that sat down at table with them and seek, sought to reason with them. He, he pleaded with them. He gave them examples. He gave them parables. He gave them teaching there in their own homes that they too might come to a realization of their sin and that they might be saved. He sought to win them, not just attack them. In this case, Jesus is going to enjoy a meal, it says, verse 1, at the house of the ruler of, a, of the Pharisees. We don't know exactly what this position was, but it's clearly one of prominence and power and authority. This meal would have, it was a Sabbath day meal, would have been prepared the day before because again, there was no work allowed on the Sabbath. They couldn't prepare meals and so it would have been prepared the day before so that they could enjoy it on this day. And indeed, it was a special invitation to not only be brought to uh, Pharisee's house at any time, but particularly on the Sabbath. Now you can go, oh, that's so nice. The Pharisees invited him to a meal. That sounds great. But Luke makes it very clear that this, their motives were far from pure. Notice the end of verse one. It says they were watching him carefully. This is, means they were lying in wait to catch him. They were watching carefully to see what he would do. Like a detective waiting in the shadows to watch what a suspect might do or a hunter who's watching a trap. So these men were watching to see if they could trap Jesus. They wanted to catch him doing something wrong. In verse 2, we see their plan beginning to unfold. It says, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Behold, either that could mean that the man simply walked in at that moment. Behold, here he is. Or it could be, behold, the Pharisees brought out the very man that they had planted in their midst. I think that's more accurate. The Pharisees were lying in wait. They had prepared, they had invited this man who had dropsy, who was probably very flabbergasted at the invitation to come to this meal, thinking that, wow, I got invited to this. I, I never get invited to these things. And here he is, but here he's being used as a pawn in the Pharisees' plan. Dropsy was more of a symptom than it was an actual disease. It's a condition where the body is filled with excess fluid. The, the Jews saw such a condition as a sign of God's judgment. Not that that was necessarily accurate, but they believed it was a, a judgment for uncleanness or immorality. And so this man generally would not be a welcomed guest normally. But here he's brought in for a unique purpose. What will Jesus do? Well, verse 3 makes it clear that trap or no trap, Jesus is moved by compassion. Jesus is moved by his love for those who are suffering. 
And so it says that he, verse 3, look at it, Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees. When do we typically use the word responded? When something's already been spoken to you, right? When someone's been spoken to you, then you respond. Has any words been spoken to Jesus? No. I think here's an indication that Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking. He knew exactly what they were going to do. And so they made a move, like a move on a chess board, and Jesus responded with his own move, even though there was no word spoken to him. Jesus moves forward with compassion. He he responds to their actions with his own, and he responds with a question. He says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, he had asked similar questions of Pharisees back in chapter 6. This is not the first time that he's asked such a question. But each time, it puts these people, these Pharisees, in a pickle. If they say yes, then they have nothing to condemn Jesus by if he heals them. But if they say no, then they're seen as these compassionless men which they actually are. They just don't want to reveal that. And so Jesus, in one sense, seeks to pin them to the wall with this very simple question. But Jesus, by that very question and by what we've seen already through this gospel, Jesus sees the Sabbath as a perfect day to heal. Because you see, the Sabbath was the day that God rested, which looks forward, as Hebrews chapter 4 tells us, looks forward to the new creation when there will be a final rest for God's people, when everything will be made new and we can ultimately rest. And so Jesus sees healing on the Sabbath as a prefiguring of that ultimate Sabbath rest that will come to God's people. Verse 4 says, they remained silent. They remained silent. This could mean that they were stumped This could mean that they couldn't think of an answer. I think it actually means that they in their arrogance didn't want to respond to such a lowly question. Listen, we're not the the ones to be questioned here. We're not the ones on trial. We're not going to respond to you. But by even refusing to answer, they gave an answer, didn't they? And so Jesus, seeing their silence, knowing what their answer is, it says, then he took him and healed him and sent him away. Jesus moves into action. It says he took him. Does that mean that he embraced him? Does that mean he grabbed him by the shoulders? Does that mean he grabbed him by the hand? We don't know, but it means he reached out to him to show his tenderness and his affection for him. He pulled him close, healed him, and then sent him away. Realizing that this man did not need to remain in the the midst of these men, these hypocritical men who were judging him, And so then upon healing, verse 5, look at it. It says, he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? He follows up with a question. And this question brings to the fore the heart of the issue. When it was their own property at stake, these men could find room within the law to be able to act in such a way to show compassion and love to their son or to their own animal. And yet, when here in this 
instance, when their interests aren't threatened and it was the interests of somebody else, they could find no room and they remained cold-heartedly closed to this man. They would make allowances for themselves, but not allowances for others. They were rigid in their interpretation of their own traditions when it came to others, but they weren't so rigid when it came to themselves. They remained hardened in their legalism. They would rescue on the Sabbath if it benefited them, but they would not if it benefited somebody else. Jesus asked the question, which of you? By implication, it's all of you would do this. You all would reach out in this way. And yet here, there you are sitting cold-hearted as you stare at this man and you don't want him healed on this day. The question is really both a rebuke and a subtle call to repentance. Listen, guys, you would do this for your own son, for your own ox. Will you not do this for this man? The sense you could, there's a broken heart of Jesus as he calls out their inconsistency and their hypocrisy. He, in essence, he's saying, guys, don't you see your hypocrisy? You're willing to free an ox on the Sabbath, but your heart remains closed to a suffering man. And as a result, it says, verse 6, they could not reply to these things. Verse 4, they would not reply. Verse 6, they could not reply. They had no ability. And here, once again, Jesus indicts the religious establishment. They remain hardened in their sin. He has spent years teaching the people of Israel. He spent years even talking about and teaching on the Sabbath, revealing himself to be the spirit-anointed Messiah, confirming those claims with healings and miracles. God is clearly with Jesus. He is clearly revealing the eternal power of God, and yet these men have learned nothing. They refuse to bow the knee to Christ. They refuse to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow after him. I believe that this account teaches us of the damning nature of pride. Pride will keep one from seeing Jesus for who he truly is. Pride will cause us to follow in the footsteps of these Pharisees. To remain cold-hearted, closed-hearted to those in need around us. Friends, what do you get when you mix pride and Christianity? One of the things you get is cold legalism. You get people who are judgmental about those who don't measure up to the accepted church culture. You get people who seek to control themselves or others around them according to their standard of righteousness. You get people whose hearts gravitate towards rule-keeping and towards the rule-keepers instead of sufferers. Cold legalism produces people who are more critical than compassionate. And unfortunately, Church history and even our own experience has shown that the church can have people like this in their midst. And we've got to be on the lookout that this sort of cold legalism does not rise up in our own hearts and lives. We need to examine our lives. We need to look at the gospel of grace and recognize that the very grace that we've been shown is a grace that we must give to other people. 
We are not who we are. We have not attained the level that we are at. We have, do not have the character that we have because of anything that we have done. We have not earned our holiness. We have not earned our good morals. We have not earned our great standard of righteousness, friends. It is all of grace that God would work in our lives, that we sinners such as us, proud people as we are, that God would work in us, that we would submit to his word and his law at all. And so we must recognize that we have been given grace and we must give grace to others. It's only then that we're going to be freed up to love others from the heart. We're free to give grace just as we received it. If humility is going to divine the church, then it must be filled with people who love others more than they love their self-imposed rules. Paul made this clear in Galatians chapter 5 after he is, has spoken so much against legalism and this holding people to standards that are not biblical. He says in Galatians 5, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Yes, we're freed from our sin, but we cannot then turn around and bite and devour one another. We must love others. And so in light of Jesus' confrontation here, I ask you, what are the standards that define your interactions with others. Maybe particularly when you think about other people in the church, what are the criterion by which you judge them and how does that change your perception of them? Is it how they dress? Is it how they spend their free time? Is it how they vacation? Is it what car they drive? Is it what they watch for entertainment? Is it what music they listen to? Is it the people they hang out with? Is it what they post to social media? Listen, friends, the way we live according to God's word affects all these areas of life. Okay, yes, the lordship of Christ stands over all these ways that we live, but there is great freedom in Christ on how we live that out. There are core principles we must live by, but the way that is fleshed out in each one of our families and lives can look vastly different. We all need to evaluate ourselves that we're living according to God's word. But we need to make sure that we're not judging and holding other people to a standard that is extra biblical, that is our own application of God's word, not God's word itself. The gospel, rightly understood, sets us free to love, not to judge, and not to hold people to extra biblical standards and for us to stand in our prideful adherence to those. And so if we're going to walk in true humility, friends, we must learn Jesus' lesson that he gives to the Pharisees here, and that is to repent of cold legalism. But there's a second sin that Jesus highlights in our text this morning, and that is that Jesus teaches us that true humility renounces all self-promotion. First, it's cold legalism. Secondly, it's self-promotion. And we see this in verses 7 through 11. Verse 7, the tables are turned. Verse 1, the Pharisees were watching Jesus. 
Now, what's happening in verse 7? He, it says that he noticed how they were choosing the places of honor. Jesus, Jesus is watching the Pharisees. The incident that just happened with the man of dro with dropsy just finished. They, when they had all kind of gathered, it was kind of the appetizer hour, you could say. And uh, they're all standing around and that happened. And then it was time to go sit down. And so they would, they would have gone to go wash their hands on a ceremonial washing before they went to go eat. They then go to sit down and Jesus holds back and stands back a bit. And he watches to see what goes on. These men were very clearly jockeying for positions of honor. They were, in one sense, without shame, looking for the best seat in the house. You could picture the high-nosed little brush to the side, little scoot in here, trying to move to get to the place that they want. The tables in that day were often U-shaped, or you could think of a rectangle with a side taken out. The bottom of the U was the middle of it and where the host would sit and the places of honor were often next to the host. And so these men were trying to get into the right and to the left of the host. And watching this spectacle, Jesus standing back and observing these supposedly great religious and holy men looking to get the best place in the house reminded Jesus of the words of Solomon in Proverbs chapter 25, where in verses 6 and 7, Solomon wrote this, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. And so Jesus takes the principle from this proverb and applies it anew and afresh to this audience. It says that he tells the parable. He told them a parable, it says, verse 7. It's a parable describing a scene at a wedding feast where a man starts by sitting in the best seat. Believing he deserves the best, he presumptuously takes the place of honor and you could see him sit down smugly and go, yeah, this is where I belong. I got it. I got it before Joe. I knew I deserve it. But then this man is shamefully mistaken. The host notices that a more distinguished guest comes in and no doubt there was something about his dress, the, the robes that he wore, that, that, or they knew this man, that he was, he was more distinguished. He had a higher authority in the city. We don't know. And the host then realizes he needs to give him the place of honor. And so he walks him over to the man and says, excuse me, you need to give your seat to this man. The people that truly were of distinguished quality often arrived late. They, could, they were fashionably late, you might say, so that everyone would be there seated and they could watch as this distinguished person would arrive. In the case, it set it up for this one to be mistaken and the guest requires this man to give up a seat. As Jesus says in Verse 9, he says, then you will begin with shame to take the lower place. The Greek here is very graphic that almost describes this painful walk of shame that with every step he feels this great shame. It's a painful move from the highest seat to the lowest place. 
All eyes would be on him and he would be humiliated before all. But instead of that, instead of that humiliation, Jesus suggests another way. He says, why don't you, verse 10, when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes to you, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. And then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. You'll be promoted by somebody else rather than promoted by yourself. Now, it could be possible that when you look at this, exam, this advice that Jesus gives, that the advice is still a little self-serving. I don't know if maybe you thought that. You're like, so Jesus, what you're saying is that if I really want that place, then there's another roundabout way I can get it. Okay, all right, I got you. Next time I'll sit there and then the host will come to me and I'll still get what I want. In other words, as if he's giving some, some strategy that you just feign humility and you'll ultimately get your pride stroked in the process. But of course, this is not what Jesus is teaching at all. As verse 11 makes abundantly clear, he, Jesus punctuates his point in verse 11 in case we were mistaken. Look at it. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus' point is this, that we have got to humble ourselves or God will do it for us. We must humble ourselves or God will do it for us. Then these verses, there are divine passives. He says, you must exalt your, those who exalt themselves and those who humble themselves. And then it says, will be humbled or will be exalted. Who does that humbling? Who does that exalting? It's God. He's the one who balances the scales. He is the one who will give everyone what they are due. And this truth is taught throughout scripture. He, Psalms Chapter 75, verses six through seven says, for one's rising up does not come from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert, but God is the judge. He puts down one and raises up another. First Peter 5, 5, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Isaiah 2, verse 17, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled. And the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. You could think of also the examples that God gives in Scripture of God humbling the proud. Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar walks across the city wall and looks out and says, look at this great kingdom that I have built. And instantly God fulfills the promise that he had given him in a dream, and he turned him into an animal and made him made him go into the field and eat grass for seven years. Or you think of Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 12. And he's standing there before the praises of the people as they all hail him. And right there on the spot, God has him eaten by worms because he failed to give glory to God. These are illustrations of this very principle that God will strike down the haughtiness of man. And so in light of that, we have examples from Jesus' instruction here to other places in Scripture that we are to humble ourselves. We can avoid that fate, in other words. We can avoid the fate of being absolutely humbled and destroyed by God's power if we would but humble our hearts now. Which is why James chapter 4, verse 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Or 1 Peter 5, verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. 
Friends, this truth that Jesus teaches us here in Luke chapter 14 is as relevant for us today as anything. We live in a world and a culture of self-promotion. You can monetize your self-promotion. You can make a living out of your self-promotion, gain a platform, the world will listen, and you can market yourself. Wherever people gather, people love to endeavor to promote themselves, whether it be online or in person, at a work event or a little league baseball game. People are on a constant pursuit to be noticed, to be respected, to be adored. And again, this is just a playing out of the craving for our love of self that is, comes hardwired with sinful man. We see it in the child who seeks to take the largest piece of cake. And you see it in the employee who seeks to jockey his position with the boss to try to get the promotion. It's a love of self. And it's all around us. It's, it's into every area of our society. Promoted as good. I'm amazed at the the online world of influencers, social media influencers that have millions and thousands of followers, whether on Instagram or TikTok or YouTube, and this constant grow to try to gain subscribers and, 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 and try to get more influence. And this is the world that young people today are, are watching. They're watching influencers as they swipe through the videos and the posts. And it's put forward as the good life. And so that young people today, a high majority of them believe, number one, that they, if they wanted to be a social media influencer, they could if they wanted to, and most want to. They want to jump into that game and get all of the accolades, all of the likes, all of the thumbs up, all of the comments that they see those influencers get. Recording hours and hours of oneself to promote to others. And so what's, what's marketed to them is that self-promotion is the way to get the good life. Of course, this self-promotion isn't only with the young and it's not only out there. Self-promotion can be found in the church as well, right? We want to be seen as the ones who are the most gifted, the most willing to serve, the most sacrificial. Or we want to be noticed as the wisest, the most knowledgeable, the most well-read. We can take pride in our families, in our way of life, the decisions that we've made, the, the standards that we have. We want to be seen as the family with the most well-behaved kids, well-dressed kids, or best-educated kids. And of course, social media can only magnify these very desires. But friends, Jesus makes it clear that to be his disciple means we must renounce self-promotion. We don't seek the places of honor and recognition for ourselves, friends. We're not seeking to get a greater position in this life or greater exaltation in the eyes of others. But why? Because we await the final day. Jesus promised that those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so we wait for that day when the exaltation comes, when Christ returns. We don't need it in this life. Dr. Thomas Schreiner helpfully explains it this way. He says, true humility 
does not seek honor and praise in this world as its goal. We turn away from the aching need to promote ourselves because we trust in the final reward given by God. In other words, what is required is genuine humility, a deep security that comes from trust in the Lord and frees believers from self-grasping. God will honor such believers on the last day since they have put their future entirely in his hands. And so with verse 11, Jesus wants us to look to that final day, that our ultimate exaltation comes when Christ returns, when this, the, this age comes to a close. But in a sense, this verse is a call to salvation. Jesus calls us to see that if we are proud in this life, we will be humbled. There will be an ultimate humbling, an ultimate destruction that will come to those who refuse to repent and those who refuse to humble themselves in this life. And so Jesus is showing us as one author put it, that the highway of the humble, the highway of humility is the, is the pathway, leads to the gate of heaven. The highway of humility leads to the gate of heaven. And so I ask you this morning simply, are you on this highway? Have you humbled yourself before the Lord? Are you walking on the highway of humility or the highway of self-exaltation and self-promotion? Mark Jesus' words, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And so we need to learn, first, we need to renounce our cold legalism. Secondly, renounce our self-promotion. But thirdly and finally this morning, we need to renounce selfish favoritism. Selfish favoritism. The third sin that Jesus rebukes in this passage, starting in verse 12. You'll notice verse 7, he directs his comments to who? To the guests. Those who were sitting at the table. The host was excluded. Well, Jesus turns his attention to the host and says, listen, buddy, you're not off the hook. He has a word for everyone. And he tells the host, listen, if you're going to throw a meal, if you're going to throw a party, then you should not just invite your friends and those who can repay you, but you should be looking to pull in those who can't repay and if you do so, there's blessing to such sacrificial invitations. Now, I don't believe that Jesus' words here means that we can never invite friends over or we can never invite family over or never invite somebody who's wealthy over. That's not Jesus' point. But what he is highlighting is a culture of hospitality in which the only people invited are those who fit a certain criteria. In their mind, they invited a variety of different people, but their, the common denominator and all the people they invited was reciprocity. They looked to see what they could get in return. They were invited only those who could return the favor. And so in other words, the motive that Jesus calls out to these people is that their motive was self-serving. But Jesus calls his disciples to a higher standard. He says, that hospitality should be driven by generosity. We should be, have a desire to bless those who can't repay us. There should be no boundaries upon our hospitality, whether it be economic, social, or otherwise. These 
people, the list that he gives, the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, would be people that not just were physically or economically disadvantaged, but they would have been socially disadvantaged. Because of their condition, they would not have been invited into the accepted circles. But Jesus says, you are to reach out to them. You are to include them, not bring them in to serve your tables, but to actually be a member, an equal member at your table. Jesus makes it clear that hospitality should be done with a heart to bless, other, bless others. It should be an act of generosity. It should be practiced with a desire to give, not with a hope for exchange or repayment. Now, why should we do this? Why should we reach out to those that are disadvantaged, to those that are in a difficult situation? Jesus says, verse 14, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. In other words, Jesus again points us to the end. Points us to the end. Don't have your eyes fixed on the here and now, believer. He says, look to when you will be repaid. There is a promise coming that you will get everything back in plenty more, in abundance. Don't think that you've got to get it all now. You can get it later. Your father will see and will reward you at the resurrection of the just. This is the resurrection when Christ returns to set up his kingdom. And it says, Revelation 20, that this is the first resurrection. And so friends, don't miss this. God honors selfless generosity. God honors selfless generosity. He honors an inclusive hospitality in which we particularly reach out to those who are disadvantaged from us. Friends, all Christians are to practice hospitality. The New Testament's very clear on that. And if the temptation can be, either we don't practice hospitality and we just keep to ourselves, that's one sin, or we, when we do practice hospitality, we only do it to those we're comfortable with and we're familiar with our friends, our family, and that's exactly what Jesus is calling out here, that the circle of people that we invite into our lives and into our homes are just the ones we're comfortable with and we keep the uncomfortable people out. But Jesus' message is clear that we aren't just to do that. We are to reach out to those that might be hard for us to include. All people, and particularly within the church. Again, our Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are all to reach out to one another. And so I ask you, are you looking for such people? Or do you avoid those uncomfortable people? Do you notice those who are hurting, who are grieving, who are disadvantaged from you, who are struggling? Do you move toward them or do you move away from them? Do you invite them or do you exclude them? Friends, we must be driven by the gospel and seek to show the love of Christ to all people. John Calvin, the reformer, again wrote, we shall never arrive at true meekness by any other way than by humiliating ourselves and by honoring others from the depth of our hearts. I pray truly that we would be defined not by a selfish favoritism in how we show our hospitality, but that there would be a true generosity, a true inclusiveness of the heart of Christ that seeks to reach out to all people. And friends, how might you press into this example, this command this morning? How might you learn from this even over the next few months to seek to reach out to those in this congregation that maybe you've avoided, that maybe you haven't 
sought to spend any time with? Who is it that you can bring in and show the love of Christ around the dinner table? Jesus' words here in our passage this morning challenge us to root out pride, to find all these instances in which we can seek to gain things for ourselves. Wherever cold legalism, self-promotion, or selfish favoritism exists, we need to repent of it. And we need to follow the example of our Savior who came and lived selflessly and gave himself not to be served, but to serve and give himself as a ransom for many. Friends, we follow the example of a humble Savior. And I pray that God gives us the grace to walk in humility so that we might love others and do much good for his name's sake. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you for the privilege of knowing you and your word. And we ask that you would please help us, Lord, that we might be able to see with our eyes the pride that exists within our own hearts. The problem with it is that we are often too blind to see it. And so I ask, oh Lord, that you would be gracious to help us to come face to face with the pride that is in our hearts, the ways that we are living for self rather than living for Christ, the ways that we are loving ourselves instead of loving others, the ways that we are taking from others rather than giving to others. Oh, Father, humble us. And may we, as a collection of believers at Foothill Bible Church, be those that in some small way give a picture to the world of what following Christ humbly looks like. And Lord, if there is any gains in our humility, we will give you the praise because we know that if there is any change in our hearts, it is because of you. And we thank you that you have promised to finish the work that you began in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.